This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Reporter Dua El Deeb, and she is continuing the ProPublica train with us today. Uh, she's a reporter for ProPublica, and her work has examined the death of children in state care, the treatment of juveniles in adult court, and police use of polygraphs in cases where suspects were wrongly convicted. Her reporting has sparked legislative hearings, governmental reforms, and has led to the exoneration of a mother who was convicted of murdering her own son. In 2015, El Deeb and two colleagues at the Chicago Tribune were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting after revealing that youths were assaulted, raped, and prostituted at a state-funded residential or at state-funded residential treatment centers. And before joining the Tribune, she was a reporter with the Daily South Town, where her stories uncovering theft and corruption at the Regional Office of Education resulted in the arrest of the superintendent and spurred lawmakers to abolish the office. Dua El Deeb, you clearly have receipts, as the kids say. So you come to this story or to this topic with a wealth of knowledge and information. You've been writing about this work extensively. And I, I gave my audience a warning at the very beginning of the show. This is a very challenging topic, so I'm just going to repeat it again for those of you for whom this might be particularly sensitive. We are going to be talking about uh, Dua's article or series of articles that explore the stillbirth crisis in America. So I'm giving you that warning one more time uh, because we are going to have that discourse here. And I want to be sensitive to those of you in the audience who may need uh, a bit of time to adjust. And, and so, Dua, thank you first for being with us today. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Now, let's start with the very beginning, because I don't want to presume that we are all necessarily on the same page. Can you define how the medical community, or can you share with us how the medical community defines stillbirths and how they are distinguished from, say, a miscarriage? Great question. So, this is something that I learned during the reporting. It wasn't something that I knew ahead of time, but stillbirths are defined as the death of a fetus in the womb at 20 weeks or more pregnancy. And miscarriages are, you know, deaths of the fetus before that. So oftentimes we hear about miscarriages early on in the pregnancy, but stillbirths can happen anytime 20 weeks and they can go all the way up to, you know, 40 and 40 weeks, so full term um, pregnancies. Now, I've seen the phrase stillbirth crisis used to describe what's happening in this country. How does this reach crisis proportions? And I, I'm asking because most of us have no idea that this is happening. We may know of a person, but often these are not topics that we're discussing in meaningful ways. How does this reach crisis proportions in this country? And, and that's one of the problems is that there's just such a lack of awareness and education around the topic. And so many of the women that I interviewed said they didn't even know they were at risk of a stillbirth until it happened to them, wow. uh, which is just devastating to hear that. And, and it's really been a silent crisis. There is so much stigma and guilt attached with talking about the death of a baby, the death of a wanted baby. And when you look at the numbers, that's where it reaches crisis proportions. So every year, more than 20,000 babies are still born in the United States. Wow. And that number, I know it's it's mind blowing. Again, I didn't know any of this before I started 
investigating this issue, but that number is actually more than the number of uh, babies or children who died in the first year of life, what's known as infant mortality. Mm. Um, and it's 15 times the number of um, babies who die of SIDS. And I think we've all heard of SIDS. This is, you know, there's been national campaigns awareness uh, around this issue, um, but stillbirth is so much larger, we just don't hear about it. Mm. Are, what are the factors that contribute to stillbirth? Are there a general set of factors that one could say, okay, if I'm pregnant and I'm experiencing these things, that would let me know that something is wrong? Do we, do we have a, an understanding as to what factors might alert you to the fact that there is a problem happening? And it, it is complicated because the risk factors are varied. There's a wide range of risk factors. So, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, women who uh, smoke or who are obese, uh, who are pregnant with multiples, um, all of those are, are risk factors for stillbirth. But for women who, a lot of the women that I talked to didn't have these risk factors and they still experience stillbirth. And what they didn't know is that they had some warning signs, but they were never told that they were warning signs. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest things that I keep hearing about is fetal movement, the way that the baby moves in the stomach. Um, and so knowing your baby's normal, so whether or not they move, you know, multiple times in one hour, just being able to track that so that then if they, you know, if they divert from that, whether or not that's decreased fetal movement, or if it's like increased, like these, these mm-hmm. bouts of excessive movement, those are some um, really big warning signs that doctors say, you know, contact them immediately, go to the hospital immediately. Maybe it's nothing or maybe it's a sign that your baby is in distress. And that, you know, these things that mothers kind of know, pregnant people, we, we kind of know. Like I remember like my firstborn, like he was at, you know, from the hours of 10 p.m. till four in the morning. That was his active waking time. And if ever there was a, a, a lacking in movement, I, the, one of the first things I was concerned about was, okay, I'm actually sleeping, which means the baby's not moving. Is everything okay? And so being aware of that and being in tune with that is something that is really important. And yet at the same time, you talk a lot about in this article in particular, the fact that there are some women who have said, no, I know something is wrong. And I, I communicated that something was wrong and no one listened to me. Talk us through that phenomenon as well. Yeah, this this notion that women are being dismet, dismissed and ignored once they go to their healthcare provider um, is again, just, just heartbreaking because like you said, you know, pregnant people know their bodies. They know their babies more, better than, you know, anyone else. And so there are several cases where pregnant people would go to the doctor and say, look, something is wrong. Something is, you know, I feel like something's not quite right. And um, I think that a lot of times doctors are, you know, don't want to scare their patients. They don't want to unnecessarily worry them. And so they'll be like, okay, no, you know, it's fine. You'll be fine. Just, you know, go home, drink some, drink some juice, drink some cold water. You'll be fine. Um, but what the research has shown us is that actually, you know, their their concerns should be taken seriously because they do know what's happening. And so, you know, I, I told the story, multiple stories of, of women who, you know, some of them, you know, felt concerned about speaking up. So, you know, um, one of the women I talked to was like, you know, I knew something was wrong, but I was like, oh, I don't want to be the complainer. I don't want to be, you know, the problem patient. Yeah. If there's something really wrong, yeah. my doctor would tell me. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't always happen. 
it doesn't always happen. And unfortunately, there are some racial components to this as well, which really tracks with sort of the what we all have now come to understand is part of the black maternal death rate or maternal mortality rates. Talk with us about some of the racial disparities, particularly when it comes to doctors seeing, hearing and valuing the information that black patients, for example, are telling them. So the, the racial disparities in, in stillbirth are so alarming and so disturbing, but unfortunately they follow the racial disparities, the trend that we're seeing, you know, throughout healthcare. And so when it comes to stillbirth, you know, black women, the stillbirth rate for black women, according to CDC was 10.3, whereas for white women, it was 4.7. So oh it's God. just, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just shocking to see that. So black women are more than twice as likely as white women to have a stillbirth. And some states, they're, you know, nearly three times as likely. And um, like you said, this is very similar to maternal mortality, where, you know, black women are nearly three times as likely to um, die of, during or right after pregnancy. Mm. Um, and so, and and the, the protective factors as they describe them in research, like, our education levels, um, things like that don't protect them when it comes to these things. And so, you know, researchers, um, experts, doctors, women, mothers, everyone is trying to understand why. And one of the things that has come up is, you know, racism, structural racism. And as you mentioned, this idea that um, women are not listened to or they're ignored by their healthcare provider, but black women and, and women of color are two times more likely to be ignored than their white counterparts. Mm. I, I'm looking at one of the quotes in the article from one of the, the folks that you spoke with, a woman by the name Brooke, uh, and she says, if they would have listened to me earlier, I would have delivered a living baby. But if you're a black woman, you get dismissed because it's like, what are you complaining about now? And I have to be honest with you, Dua, you know, I have on this show, we've had doctors who have talked about advocating for yourself and making sure that you are speaking up when, they, when there's a problem or there's a concern. And, and these are the questions you should ask. Here's how you should phrase it. But when those questions are coming out of a black mouth, it is often just sort of put in this, as, as Brooke said, what are you complaining about now? So it feels like a catch 22. On the one hand, we're supposed to be these vibrant self-advocates at a point where, quite frankly, all you're thinking about is delivering a baby and the, the act of advocating for yourself, which requires an additional burden. And that's a, a lot of labor. I'm using that word intentionally to get the medical community to listen to you. There is this stress and the emotion of what you're experiencing. So on the one hand, we're, we're advocating. But on the other hand, it almost feels like it's going to be couched in the loud, black, angry black woman perspective. So it feels like for black women in particular, we're really facing a catch 22 when it comes to advocating for ourselves in these situations and under these conditions in a way that is often going to be discounted and not listened to in the first place. I think you're exactly right. And I think Brooke's story, you know, um, the, the the data from the CDC really shows how the healthcare system is, is failing black women. And I think that, yes, you know, we should, um, women, black women, women of color should advocate for themselves, should know what questions to ask. But a lot of that then also responsibility falls on the provider to listen and to really understand where their patients are coming from and understand what they mean when they talk about pain and when they talk about, you know, 
um, concerns about the baby not moving and and listen to their entire story, not just what's being presented in front of them, not just the numbers that are in front of them. And I think that, you know, that's where as a as a system, as a healthcare system, as a country, we have to get better at. You spoke extensively with Dr. Ashonda St. John, and one of the things that you quoted her as saying, uh, you said that with each new story, St. John asked the same question. Would they have been treated differently if they had not been black? And far too often, she concluded the answer was yes. Talk with us about Dr. St. John's experience and what she observed in her role. Um, again, another person, she's the chair of obstetrics and gynecology at Health Alliance Hospitals of the Hudson Valley. Talk with us about what she was seeing and what she relayed to you for the story. She, you know, my interview, I remember that interview very clearly because it was um, just such an, um, you know, she spoke and as she spoke, everything she was saying were the same things that I was hearing from patients, but now I had a doctor saying it, right? I was hearing it from a, a doctor's perspective and she was saying she had patients. Um, so she is a black doctor and she said that, you know, she would have patients who would come to her and who would travel far distances because of like, I don't want to die. Um, you know, giving birth. I don't want my baby to die. And she told me a story about this one patient who, um, you know, called ahead of time and, you know, made sure that she was Black and she went into her uh, to see her and then she had a really positive experience. She was like, you know, I wish you could see my, you know, my mother and my, you know, sister and my grandmother. And she was like, Dr. St. John was like, yes, I'd love to see them. And she was like, okay, good, because they're in the car. Um, wow. But, you know, mm. she felt such, uh, you know, a, a comfort and a safety talking to another doctor who saw her for who she was, again, not for her comorbidities, not for, right. you know, the, the um, you know, her, her diagnoses. And again, you know, when you look at the, the, the research on structural racism, you know, there was this one study that I saw that found that black babies were less likely to die when they were cared for by black doctors. Mm. Um, and so again, I think it's, you know, and I talked to, I talked to, black doctors, I talked to white doctors, and, you know, a lot of them, they got into this profession because they want to save lives, because they want to, especially, you know, OBGYNs, they're like, oh, we love bringing life into this world, we love it, but I think there's this piece of structural racism that still has not been overcome in this country, and this implicit bias, this implicit discrimination that we're seeing, and so Dr. St. Jean, you know, speaking to her, she was like, yes, I hear it over and over, you know, in the stories of, of my patients and other patients that, you know, if they had not been Black, I think the outcome would have been different. You know, that study or the, the research that suggests that Black babies delivered and cared for by Black doctors end up surviving it or have a higher survival rate, it mirrors the research that says that black children taught by black teachers end up doing better in school. And it just feels to me, Dua, like we are seeing the limitations in many ways of what integration has been able to provide. And we're sort of hitting a point where the, the return on investment is, is becoming very, very skewed. And, and there, it's not necessarily producing the results that certainly I, I know I would want to see. And But this idea that if you have a, I should not at any stage of my pregnancy 
feel desperate to find a doctor who looks like me because I tie that success, that victory in finding that doctor to my own ability to survive. I should not have to seek out a doctor with the hopes that, oh my God, I found a black one, so now I and my baby will live. That should not be how this goes. And yet we're seeing that the research supports that that is actually a pretty... It's kind of like knowing that when the police come, you got to make sure you're at 10 and 2, you have everything correct, because if you don't, you might not make it home. And it just feels to me like that harsh reality has to be stated. And I'm so glad that you included a lot of this information in your article. And you use the word comorbidities. And I remember before the pandemic, this was not a word that meant a whole lot to me. And then after the pandemic, it just seems sort of like, well, blackness feels like a comorbidity at this point, because all of the things that we say are going to contribute to a lower quality of life or a lower standard of living or that, that's sort of we're talking about blackness. <laughs> we're talking about elements of society that are often attenuated to black communities in a racial context. And you say in the article that the risk of stillbirth increases along with the number of quote, significant life events a pregnant person person may face, including, and y'all listen to this list, facing a job loss, inability to pay bills, the hospitalization of a close family member. And according to, to what you found, Dua, it looks as though, as you state, black people who are pregnant are more likely than their white counterparts to report multiple stressful life events. It's stressful being black in this country and experiencing racism. And we've talked in, in other contexts about the weathering effect that racism can have on black bodies. It just feels to me like there's no real way of escaping the fact that I don't want to say this place is killing us, but do it feels like dealing with the racism and trying to survive and navigate the racism is killing us. I, I hear you 100%. And I think that, you know, there was real discussions um, around whether or not to list, you know, blackness, you know, race as a risk factor. And then I got into, you know, many other discussions. Well, it's not race, it's racism. So how do you list, you know, race as a risk factor? So I think that, you know, these are some really important questions that I think haven't been answered and they're compounded by the fact that stillbirth has been such a silent crisis that, you know, that that as a whole, this issue hasn't received the attention that it needs. And so black stillbirths have received even less attention. Hmm. And so I think when you're, you know, when we're talking about, well, what can be done and I, I know organizations, medical organizations, hospitals have started to do implicit bias training and they've started, you know, to try to help their doctors be aware of these factors that we're talking about. Um, and then I think also at a national level, there is starting to be awareness that we need to do more about stillbirths in general, that, yeah. you know, that there needs to be more awareness, more education more focus on listening to pregnant people who come in and complain about these issues, these real issues that they're facing. Hmm. I've also seen that there's been reporting on, uh, I'm going to call it non-traditional, although it's weird because it is very traditional, um, having a doula, having a midwife. These are some ways that a number of black communities have used to mm -hmm. respond to this issue because there is a the idea that if you have an advocate there with you, if you have someone who is not driven necessarily by a for-profit hospitalization model, that you might get better access to care. You might have uh, better outcomes. Has your reporting revealed any benefits to those types of measures when it comes to keeping black women and or black pregnant people safe from the risks of stillbirth? 
They've talked to a number of, you know, patients who've had doulas and a number of um, doulas who have been in the hospital room while they were advocating for their patients. And um, what I'm hearing from them is, yes, it really helps to have an advocate there. It really helps to have someone who can say, you're not listening to my patient. My patient is telling you that she is concerned about this. Listen to her. Um, but I think that like everything else, like, you know, we can only advocate so much, but then, you know, the other piece of it is having people who will really listen um, and having, and and again, I think that a lot of these doctors are well-intentioned and, and they want to listen and they want to help. One of the things that I keep running into is like, well, there's just not enough research. So if you look at other countries, if you look at you know, the UK, Australia, the Netherlands, they have national action plans. They have, you know, wow. um, clinical standards to deal with slivers. And we don't have that in the US. And, you know, when I ask why, they say, oh, well, we're, we're waiting for more research. We want, you know, more research on this. There's, you know, there's a whole Count the Kicks. It's a, a nonprofit organization based in Iowa. They have an app that really helps women, um, you know, know their baby's normal. Um, and so they're like, well, what, what do we have the research on that? And so the question that I'm hearing from, you know, from 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 mothers and even some experts is like, well, how long are we going to wait for the research? You know, when right. in the meantime, babies are dying, right. because we know right. that while not all stillbirths are preventable, um, research has shown that up to one in four, so up to 25 percent of stillbirths can be prevented. That is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Absolutely mind-boggling. And one of the things that really came through in the article was the lingering impacts of what happens to the families that are left to sort of figure out what happens next. You know, I, I had uh, some young people working for me at the law center um, where I, when I'm not on air, I, I run a law center. <laughs> I had some interns working for me and they actually went through something very similar and they talked about, went through a, a stillbirth and they talked about the fact that there is no industry support here. So how do you get a, a, a box a, a, to bury a, a, 21 week old body who do you go to for counseling that has expertise in how to navigate this how do you talk with family and friends who are expecting to greet you with a baby when you come home from the hospital and then you have to relive on a regular basis why that did not happen can you walk us through some of the experiences that the folks you spoke with some of the experiences they have with trying to grapple with this type of loss thereafter it's it's gutting it it shatters them and you know they they go into the hospital um especially the the, the mothers who have had like late term stillbirths and they already have their car seat they already have their nursery they already you know they've done their baby shower everything is ready and they think that all right so we just need to deliver the baby and then we're gonna have you know the rest of our lives with with this baby and then to, to be just completely floored and to find out that I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. Uh, it's just something wow. that the, the the parents that I've talked to, like, well, we're never going to get over this. Um, and, you know, I talked to, I talked to parents who've had stillbirths recently. I talked to parents who had stillbirth eight years ago. I talked to parents who had stillbirth, you know, 20 years ago. And that grief does not go away. Hmm. And it, changes their whole trajectory of their lives. So, you know, they they thought that they were going to do, you know, this. And then all of a sudden they're like, we have to speak up for our babies because no one else is is speaking up for them. And 
we have to like one of the things that I that I learned in this process is how important it is to say the baby's names because for them wow. like they felt like their loss was invisible they don't get birth certificates um and a lot of times I think that you know the there's this feeling that their doctors or their nurses tell them like oh we're so sorry that this happened well it's just a complete fluke um and um just you can try again and you can have another baby and they're like, that baby isn't going to replace the baby that I lost. Like, right. this was my child. Um, I'll never forget there was um, one family, you know, they, um, so they they had a stillbirth and they had other uh, children later on. And so sorry. Um, and um, and when I was looking at the artwork that, you know, that this, you know, five-year-old boy was doing um it had all of like you know the mom the dad the sister the brother and then it had his his stillborn sister with uh in with uh with wings in the background um because for them like she's still very much a part of their family and so you know i heard one doctor talking about it he had experienced uh, his wife had experienced a stillbirth and he was saying you know when you lose a parent nobody ever tells you well at least you have another parent you know and so it's like yeah, this this idea that like they they are not these were wanted babies um, that were that died and with like in many cases with no warning whatsoever. So there's this this devastation. But I think what I'm also picking up on in these interviews is this anger that there could have been you know perhaps something more could have been done about it, but it wasn't. Yeah. You mentioned some of the systems failings that happen in the thereafter. And I remember one of my young folks telling me, you know, even after, you know, at least you get paternity leave when you come home with a live child, when you've had a, a, mis- a stillbirth or in the case of a miscarriage, maybe you get bereavement de- leave. What is that? Three, four days. But imagine, audience, the trauma of coming home from that hospital space. You still have to go back to work. There is no child to to talk to your coworkers about. And all you have is this experience that, unfortunately, because we do not have a lot of discussion about this topic, coworkers, family members don't may not even know how to communicate with you afterwards. There, you may not know how to communicate with them, and the level of pain and anguish that is sort of then compounded by all of these additional factors that we don't even think about. Who's going to take down the nursery, right? Who's, what are we doing with this car seat? Can we return these items? And, and that level of granular thought that these families have to go through is something that there just absolutely should be a system set up to help folks navigate this space in a way that is going to allow them to grieve, to mourn, and, and give them the space that they need to heal. Because otherwise, my God, this is this is truly a shame. Dua, just I, I know that our time together is, is drawing to a close, but are you seeing any policy that you are optimistic about? Any anything that we in the audience can call up our elected officials and say, "Hey, there's this legislation that's supposed to help uh, people who are dealing with stillbirths. We need you to sign on to this." Are you seeing anything by way of that sort of activism that we, the audience, could help uplift? So I'm hearing from uh, lawmakers who are saying that really more needs to be done. This reporting has shown that we have um, fallen short of our promise to take care of these women and their babies. Um, There has been some legislation that was introduced. Uh, There's the Shine for Autumn Act, which is trying to get better data and, um, you know, better uh, training for 
pathologists who do autopsies after stillbirth. Uh, there's also um, another uh, another piece of legislation that's trying to include them in Title V um, funds. I know in New York, there is um, some movement for, you know, you mentioned parental leave to get to include stillbirths in part of that parental leave, because for some of the, um, you know, for some of the mothers, like they go through childbirth, right? They, they actually, they actually birth a child, their milk comes in, they're going through all the things that, wow. you know, a mother has to go through. And then they're told, well, they don't have a birth certificate. So, you know, we need you back at work. So there has been wow. some movement along those lines to get this uh, legislation passed. Well, that that movement needs to be uplifted and and definitely needs to be pushed because I, I'm just I'm this is heartbreaking in ways. I knew this was going to be a difficult discussion just because of the nature of the article. But thinking through all of the policy implications for this really serious topic and the racial disparities are just absolutely exactly as awful as we would expect them to be. But it really does raise a series a series of questions as we're hoping that hospitals are engaging in this implicit bias training as, as all of that, you know, sort of get it done as soon as we can type of work is happening. Uh, there are other questions that we in the village have to begin asking ourselves about what we do to keep ourselves safe. And I'm really grateful for the, uh, for the article, for the series, because you've been writing about this uh, a bit. So thank you so much for this information. And how can people follow you, get access to the materials that you're sharing and the work of ProPublica? We've had, it's all ProPublica guests today. <laughs> but how can people follow well, we you? We are honored. <laughs> thank you for highlighting our work. We are really honored to so I'm on Twitter at DLDeeb, um, D-E-L-D-I-B, uh, ProPublica, if you go to ProPublica.org, um, we have a whole series page for stillbirths. If you just, you know, search stillbirths, you can find all of the stories there as well. Dua, really appreciate you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Really helpful to walk through this topic with you. Really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.